Today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1 with All Care Pharmacy. Discover a healthcare team that's always here for you at All Care Pharmacy, Ireland's largest community pharmacy network. Today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1. Now, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky says his top military commanders have pledged to continue defending the besieged city of Bakhmut in the face of intense Russian pressure. The eastern city has seen months of intense fighting as Wagner and regular Russian troops tried to seize it. But the head of the Wagner army says they're not getting the ammunition they need from Moscow. Russia has appeared determined to capture the city for months. But many analysts say it's become a symbolic prize in the war and has little strategic value. I'm joined by Yaroslav Trofimov, who's Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent with the Wall Street Journal, and also Scott Lucas, who's Professor at UCD's Clinton Institute and Professor Emeritus at the University of Birmingham. First to you, Yaroslav. I, I know you've been on the front line in Bakhmut. We've heard so much about it. and It sounds like a desperate situation. It's a, a town that Ukraine has been defending for months. But before I talk to you about the military point of view, what about the civilians? How many are they? What conditions are they living in? Well, there's not a lot of civilians and still left in the city. Bakhmut used to have 70,000 people uh, before the war began. And over the last eight months uh, of battle for the city, the Ukrainian government has been trying to convince everyone to leave. So there are probably still a few thousand left. Uh, they are hunkering down in basements. Uh, and uh, it's really hard to imagine how they're surviving now because there's no services, no electricity. Uh, no running water and uh, no food supplies now in the city. It's, it's a battle zone. And you you paint such a desperate picture of that battle zone with soldiers, particularly those from the Wagner group who are fighting for the Russians, mm-hmm. running across lines to almost certain death. Right. It's actually safer for them to run to almost certain death uh, and advance than to retreat because... Uh, the punishment uh, in Wagner is very simple. It's called uh, nullification. Uh, they are basically uh, executed either by you know uh, with a gun or with a blow of a sledgehammer to the head if they abandon their positions. So they really have no choice but to keep moving and dying. And when it comes to the number of casualties in the area, you spoke to some people who spoke of seeing piles of corpses just left there and their backpacks or their belongings taken by the soldiers who remain. Right. Well, I've actually spoken to uh, a few uh, Wagner soldiers who have uh, been taken prisoner by the Ukrainians, one of whom, uh, after having been injured in one of his failed assaults, uh, was seconded to an evacuation detail. So he was trying to pull out the wounded, but he was leaving the dead behind because there were just too many of them. And so he told me they were just stacking them up neatly uh, as, <clears throat> you know, as much as they can uh, in the trenches and abandoning them. And what about losses on the Ukrainian side? Well, unfortunately, losses on the Ukrainian side are also quite high. You know, it's been an attritional battle, and uh, especially in the last uh, few weeks, as the fighting moved inside the city, uh, the, the ratio of losses is not as lopsided in Ukraine's favor. So it's grinding down uh, the Russian uh, military, the Wagner forces, but it's also grinding down the Ukrainians. And the trade-off is really... Uh, not fair for the Ukrainians because they are losing some of the best people and Russia is emptying out its prisons of its murderers and uh, robbers and rapists. It's, it's worth explaining again, we've spoken about it before on this programme, but the, the Wagner Group, just tell us a little bit about how that operates. 
Well, sort of Wagner Group started off as one of those typical private military companies, and they were using lots of uh, former uh, special forces and other qualified Russian personnel uh, to help wage wars in Libya and Syria and uh, in the Central African Republic. But with this, with this war, they have expanded dramatically. And what they needed was manpower. And so uh, the owner of Wagner, Evgeny Prigozhin, uh, was allowed to go throughout the Russian prison system, recruiting prisoners with the promise of freedom uh, if they survive six months in Ukraine. And so uh, he managed to, to get in tens of thousands of prisoners to go and fight. And obviously very few of them survived the six months. And in your Wall Street Journal reports, you say that those fighters have a disregard for losses that is shocking for modern warfare. That is the Wagner Group's bottom line, isn't it? Can you talk to me about that? Well, it's a a disregard for losses on the part of the leaders of Wagner and the commanders and on the part of the Russian government in in the framework in which they operate. Obviously, Wagner couldn't do it without the explicit blessing of President Putin. And it's almost a sort of sort of eugenic social experiment in Russia where they empty out the prison and get rid of all the unwanted people and, and also kill Ukrainians as a bonus. And that Wagner soldier you spoke to who was captured on the Bakhmut front, what insight did he give you into how the Russian army are fighting and how the Wagner group is operating? Well, he told me that he hasn't actually met anyone from the regular Russian army. Everyone around him was also a former convict, including his commanding officers. Uh, and he was given only you know, three weeks training, and he was trained for only one task, how to crawl through a, through a forest and take over a Ukrainian uh, position. Uh, he wasn't really expected to survive uh, beyond his first mission, and most of the people who went on his first mission did not survive. He told me that out of the 12 people... Uh, that uh, that came alongside him, only four have made it through. Yaroslav Trofimov, Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent from the Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for talking to us this morning. And I'm joined now by Professor Scott Lucas, who is listening to all of that. Scott, what is going on in Bakhmut? We hear all the time, this is not a strategic town. And yet the horror of what's going on there, as described by Yaroslav, is, is just hard to take in. So explain to us why. Well, I think from the Russians' side, um, they haven't had a victory since last July. They lost a good deal of occupied territory last autumn, both in the east and the south in front of a Ukrainian counteroffensive. So they just want a victory somewhere to hold to their people, and Bakhmut was to be the place. Uh, The Wagner Group, which Yaroslav was describing, were really tasked with overrunning this city last autumn. So this has been going on for months, but still, as I speak to you today, they're inside the city, but they're only in part of it. And so that symbolic task for Vladimir Putin to say, we're winning, we're winning, still yet to be achieved. From the Ukrainian side, I think the calculation is different. Yaroslav's right. Although the Russian losses are five times as high as those of Ukraine, uh, there is a significant cost. But President Zelensky and his commanders, who met yesterday, I think are looking at Bakhmut, And they're not only looking at the symbolism of what it means to resist the Russians, how it shows that Ukraine continues to stand in face of this onslaught, but they're looking at the way that this is draining Russian resources. Um, Russia is losing a lot of men. A lot of them are Wagner forces. But Russia's also lost most of its armor. Uh, in the East in recent months. It's lost a good deal of its other mechanized equipment. 
even its artillery is under a great deal of pressure to the point where the Wagner Group head, Yevgeny Prigozhin, said this weekend, if we don't get more ammunition, our positions will be broken. And if Russia does expend all this manpower, all these weapons, the idea is, well, they may get a Pyrrhic victory, but they weaken themselves where Ukraine can carry out another counteroffensive this spring and summer, especially as it receives advanced equipment from an international coalition. Should we read anything into the criticism by the head of the Wagner Group, Prigozhin? Uh, you know, he has come out very openly and said the Russians aren't giving us enough ammunition to, to fight their war. That disharmony, does it tell us anything about Russian um, potential success here in Bakhmut? Well, first and maybe foremost, it tells you about the degree of the infighting with Moscow because Prigozhin is trying to gain influence at the expense of other Russian political and military leaders. So he's in almost his own scorched earth battle with the Russian defense ministry. Uh, he wants the credit for winning in Bakhmut so that he becomes almost number one amongst uh, Vladimir Putin's advisors. But even if you you know, take that politics into account, I think what Prigozhin is, is expressing is, is the frustration and even the concern that this, these human wave tactics, almost uh, zombie movie tactics, as the Ukrainian military puts it, haven't succeeded so far. And I do think it's, it's a, although Ukraine may carry out a controlled withdrawal from Bakhmut soon, there's also the possibility that Prigozhin's saying we just can't keep up with these wave after waves of attacks. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you hear the description of it, you know, you if you're a Wagner fighter, you either go ahead to almost mm. certain death or retreat and have your skull smashed with a sledgehammer by your own people. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there is no choice for these types of troops, which is why Wagner has been on the front lines as opposed to really deploying Russia's conventional forces. Uh, that raises questions that even if Wagner could succeed in overrunning Bakhmut, let's say the Ukrainians withdraw, and having had to take it in hand-to-hand -hand fighting, how does Russia take other Ukrainian territory relying on hand-to-hand -hand fighting? And more importantly, as Ukraine gathers more and more strength with international support, how will hand-in-hand -hand fighting help Russia defend its lines once we get past Bakhmut? through the spring, the summer and into the autumn. What about this uh, measured withdrawal that you said might be on the cards for Ukraine? How does that, that sit with what Vladimir Zelensky said at the weekend, that the forces will fight on? He's more or less doubled down on taking this town, on retaining this what? town. Oh, I, I'm not sure he's doubled down on retaining it for, for the... Have we lost Scott Lucas? In holding... Oh, sorry, uh, Scott, Scott your, your line just dropped there, but do carry on. Yeah, uh, I don't think Vladimir Zelensky is saying we're going to hold this at all costs indefinitely, but I think what he and the commanders were saying is, look, we have succeeded in establishing a perimeter, a defensive perimeter within Bamut, something which is supported by uh, military analysts in the U.S. and in the U.K., and as long as we can hold that perimeter, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll continue to sort of soak up more pressure, inflict more casualties on the Russians. And then when it's time to go, uh, Ukraine has maintained a route to the West where it could then move back to fortified positions and prepare for the next phase of the conflict. Scott, thank you very much as always for your time. That's Professor Scott Lucas there. Coming up next, Moncom McGann explores the fascinating world of nature. Oscar Elge, that's next. Text 51551 today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1.